Crawford's just better now. That's all you can say. Run, Lindsey! Lindsey Scott! Lindsey Scott! Lindsey Scott! Welcome to the Blog the Dogs podcast. I'm Herschel Gurley here as always with my co-host, Boss Dog. Boss, bark at the people. Welcome back, everyone. Today we have another interview guest. Today we have Diamond Dogs head coach, Scott Strickland. Yeah, Coach Strickland was kind enough to join us and uh, I thought it was fantastic. I loved hearing about kind of his origin story and how he came to Athens, his time as a as a professional player, and then his time at his alma mater as head coach at Kent State. He shares a, a lot of fantastic stories, and, and I'm going to tell you, if, if you weren't sure of it before, after you hear the interview, you will be so pumped and so thankful that he is at the helm for the dog. So uh, here is our interview with Ike Cousins head baseball coach, Scott Strickland. We are excited to be joined today by the Ike Cousins head baseball coach at the University of Georgia, Scott Strickland. Coach Strickland played collegiately at Kent State University, where he was a two-time all-conference catcher before being drafted by the Minnesota Twins in 1993. He played professionally for five years with the Twins, Braves, and Rays organizations before getting into coaching, starting his career as a volunteer assistant at Georgia Tech under former Kent State head coach Danny Hall. Coach Strickland had stops at Vanderbilt and then back at Georgia Tech as an assistant before being named the head coach at his alma mater, Kent State, in 2005, where he led the Golden Flashes to five Mid-American Conference Tournament Championships and in 2012, a berth in the College World Series in Omaha, where they eventually knocked off number one seed Florida uh, in the College World Series. He was named head coach at UGA June 3rd, 2013, and this past season was his seventh on the top step of the dugout. The Dogs have had quite the run the last three years under Coach Strickland, finishing as high as number two in the country this year uh, and having a top eight national seed on the road to Omaha in 2018 and 2019. Most importantly, Coach Strickland is husband and father to three kids. And Coach, we're thrilled to have you here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, appreciate it. We've all got a lot of time on our hands. Yeah, you got that right. Yeah, so it's it's good good time to talk and hear some stuff. So, like I told you, when we reached out, we're just interested in hearing about your story and your path to University of Georgia. And ironically, that started for you in a different Athens, Athens, Ohio. That's where you were born and raised, right? That is correct. Grew up in Athens, Ohio, and uh, went to Kent State University, and you know, kind of cut my teeth as a baseball player there, and, and was drafted uh, after my third year by the Minnesota Twins, and got kicked around the minor leagues for five seasons. And, uh, you know, finally decided, you know what, I'm not going to keep spinning my tires here trying to, to make the big leagues. And just the light at the end of the tunnel wasn't there. So I decided to go into coaching, and uh, that was in 1998. So here we are 22 years later, and, and I'm still doing it. Yeah, so I want to talk to you a little bit about Athens. So you're kind of in that professional triangle sitting there in Athens. Did you grow up a Steelers and Pirates fan, a Browns and Indians fan, or Reds and Bengals fan? Well, when I was younger, it was all about the Reds with Pete Rose and Johnny Bench and Joe Morgan and King Griffey and you know, all those guys. That was my team. And then once I went to college, went to, to Kent State, I became an Indians fan. Just Kent State's a lot closer to Cleveland. And that's when Cleveland kind of made their run with Albert Bell and Manny Ramirez and Carlos Baerga and all those guys. So I kind of been a Reds fan and then turned into an Indians fan. I, I root for the Indians now. And, and uh, my brother is a diehard Steelers fan. He's three years older than me. So when we were kids, the Steelers were winning Super Bowls. So he attached himself to the Steelers, and I was going to attach to whoever they were playing. So I went to a Rams fan, a Cowboys fan, 
a Bengals fan, whoever was playing the Steelers, I was rooting for. And I could never find a team that was consistently good enough to stick with. And finally found the Browns in the, in the late eighties when I was in high school, Bernie Kosar uh, kind of got them going and they went to uh, two AFC, AFC championships. And, and so I, I am a, a diehard Browns fan now. It's hard and painful to say, but uh, I'm loyal uh, to the Browns. And, and one day before I die, we're going to play in the Super Bowl. And, and, and I might have to live 50 years to have that happen. But I'm, I am now an Indians and a Browns fan. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. I love that. I mean, I think the Browns are, are building some good stuff. They've done some good stuff with their roster. And um, I like Baker. You know, I like a guy who's going to come out and, and compete for you and, and stand up for his guys. And so, so I like where they're headed. So that's good. Well, so tell us a little bit about your recruitment to Kent State. Was that your first choice or where were you looking? And what, what was your path to Kent State? Well, I'm from southeastern Ohio and there's not a whole lot of, uh, you know, population down there. It's, it's a very, uh, you know, kind of a desolate area of Ohio. It's, and a lot of people have been put on the map with Joe Burrow this year. That's where Joe's from, same high school. And, right. you know, we talked right. about County, Ohio, and it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, almost down in West Virginia. And, and Columbus is about an hour and 45 minutes away. So you know, not a lot of exposure for young baseball players, especially back in, in the late 80s. And so it came down between Ohio University, which is where Athens is. Ohio University is right in Athens, Ohio. And then Kent State saw me late in uh, the spring of my senior year. Danny Hall, who is now my arch rival at Georgia Tech, Danny Hall was the head coach at Kent State at the time. And he is from Southeastern Ohio as well. And uh, word got out that there was a catcher down in Athens and, and he happened to need one. And it's, it's been close to 31 years. So I think we can get past the NCAA violation. Uh, his dad actually came to watch me play. Danny Hall Jr. never saw me play in person before he offered me a scholarship. His dad came to watch me play, which you're not allowed to do that. But we're 31 years past. I think we're okay now. But uh, Danny Hall Sr. came to watch me play. I uh, must have had a good game that day because I had a scholarship offer the next night to go to Kent State. Oh, that's fantastic. And obviously had a, a great career at Kent State, um, two-time all-conference catcher there, uh, and, and then you get drafted in the pros. What, what was your time at Kent State like, and what are some of your highlights from playing there? Well, we had a lot of success, had a lot of really good players on our roster. My, my freshman year, uh, we lost on the last day of the year to go to the NCAA tournament. It would have been our first bid in several years at Kent State, and and uh, we were right there, and, and, and we lost a one to nothing heartbreaker to Central Michigan. And my sophomore year, I became the starter behind the plate and, and just had a great pitching staff. We ended up being ranked number two in the country in ERA my sophomore year. All four of those guys got drafted and left. The following year, we had four new starters in our rotation, and we were number one in the country in ERA. And, and that staff included Dustin Hermanson, who was the third overall pick in the draft, in 94 and Travis Miller, who was a sandwich pick. So we had two first rounders in the Mid-American Conference on that team. So just really, really pitching heavy, had a really good team all the way around. And in my junior year, we were uh, a game away from, from getting to Omaha. We were down in LSU at the, at the Baton Rouge Regional. We actually beat LSU, Todd Walker in that group. And, and, uh, and then we ended up losing on a walk-off home run to South Alabama. Oh. One more shot to, to play against LSU to go. So, had a great run at it and uh, and wouldn't wouldn't trade that time for anything. So then obviously you, because of your success, you get drafted in the Twins organization and your first stop is in Elizabethton with, with the Twins, right? So I want to talk a little Appy League with you. So tell me about that. My brother played college ball at Bluefield, so I'm real familiar with, with that area and with that league, you know, the Princeton Reds and all those. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience in the Appy League and all that? 
Well, the Appy League, that's when you know you're in the minor leagues because you are literally in the middle of nowhere every place that you play. Johnson City, where the Cardinals were at the time, that's the big city. That's where East Tennessee State is, and, and that's actually where my apartment was, and we commuted over to Elizabethan, which was about 10 minutes away. But uh, just, you know, you get on the buses, and, and it's it's the prototypical, stereotypical uh, minor league experience where your bus is broken down, doesn't have air conditioning, uh, every place you go, there's 50 people in the stands. Uh, the fields are a little bit run down and, and, uh, you got, you got to love baseball to get through the Appy league. And, and it was a tough grind and certainly a change going from, you know, a college program into the Appalachian league. And, and, and I think it's, it's an eye opener for a lot of guys when they get drafted and they go to that league. Uh, it's tough, but a really good baseball and, uh, man, it's close quarters. You get to know your teammates really quick in minor league baseball. And uh, it was a fun experience in Elizabeth. Yeah, I've told buddies that um, my brother was playing at Bluefield, and the way Bluefield is set up, it literally sits on the state line between Virginia and West Virginia. And so their apartment was on one side of the state line, and the field was on the other side of the state line. So they would literally walk to practice. They practiced and played at the same field as Bluefield Orioles. So we got to see them play while we were up there. So, you know, I love that level of baseball. You know, guys are just grinding it out, trying to make it, and it's it's fantastic. So I want to ask you another story about your minor league journey, because I saw on your Twitter that you posted some pictures with, we're all infatuated right now with the last dance, because it's all we got, man. So uh, I saw that you got to play a game against Birmingham when, when Michael Jordan was there. What was that experience like, and what are the memories that you took away from that? Well, that was 1994, and I was in the Midwest League in, in A-ball and, and having a good season, and suddenly someone got hurt in double-A, and they called me up. And at the time, you know, I was really thrilled. Hey, I'm getting a, a double promotion because I skipped the high-A level. I skipped the Florida State League and went right into the double-A in the Southern League. So at the time – you know, being 21, 22 years old, a little bit naive, I'm thinking, hey, this is this is awesome. They're sending me up there. But, you know, now that I look back and now I realize that they sent me up there because they didn't want to take prospects and send them up there to be a backup in double A. They didn't want to waste it back. So I was the guy that they kind of shuttled around. It still was pretty cool that I got the call, but I'm in, uh, in Nashville for the last probably 60 days of the season. And uh, the Birmingham Barons roll through there. And we played a doubleheader, and I can't remember if it was a scheduled doubleheader or if it was a rainout. But we played a doubleheader. I caught the second game. Uh, Michael played both games. Uh, he went one for seven in the doubleheader. I remember that specifically. And uh, in our game, I think he went zero for three. And uh, but you know, I, I chickened out to ask him for an autograph. You know, before the game, everybody kind of wanted to do it. We had a guy named Ed Gerald on our team, and if you're a North Carolina basketball fan, you remember Ed Gerald from the early '90s. Uh, he was a player at North Carolina and got drafted as a baseball player. But, uh, you know, Ed knew Michael. So we were all kind of busting Ed's chops about, hey, can can you get us Michael's autograph? And, and, and Michael had told Ed, hey, I am not signing autographs for anybody through you. If they want it, tell them to come ask me themselves. I'm really glad I didn't do it myself because uh, if you're watching The Last Dance, I think it was in episode one, that the guy that was doing like a mic check for him, uh, you know, doing, helping him out and asked for his autograph and Jordan gave him the death stare like he was going to kill him for asking for an autograph. So I saw that and, and it's, it's been, what, 25 years ago and now I took a breath. I'm like, man, I'm glad I didn't ask him in person for an autograph. But I did get uh, some pictures signed uh, later on, four years later. Uh, they got passed along to him when he was uh, playing against the Hawks in Atlanta. Had a friend whose dad worked in marketing with the Hawks and 
got into the locker room with the Bulls and had the pictures of me and him. They were baseball pictures and I didn't think he'd sign them and, and he loved them. Uh, my friend's dad said, yeah, baseball stuff. He didn't see it very often. And, and they were action pictures and he loved them. He personalized them, signed them to me. And, uh, and it's just a really cool thing. Got them here in my basement. They're a great conversation piece. Oh, that's really cool. What a, what a cool kind of, kind of bow on that story. That, that's fantastic. I, I think what's been interesting about, about watching that and kind of seeing or thinking back on the baseball journey is, you know, for a baseball player, he was big. I mean, to, to have a guy that tall, you know, he's almost as tall as Aaron Judges. So um, it, just interesting to kind of look back on that and, and think about that compared to what it was. And I read an article in The Athletic this week that said, um, talked to a bunch of guys he played with down the Arizona Fall Lake and had talked about those guys were like, you know, if he had had some more years and had started younger the way he worked and how competitive he was they thought you know maybe maybe he would have had a shot just because he had the the tools and the hand-eye coordination to do it so. I don't think there's any question and you know he, he hadn't played baseball over 10 years and he jumps right into double a and did just fine I mean I think he hit 190 and, and had 50 some RBIs and stole 20 some bases and played every single day and uh you know, it's, it's, it's really weird when you look at him in a baseball uniform, he looks tall and lanky, but when you look at him on the basketball floor, he looks exactly the way he's supposed to look. And, you know, everyone else around him is 6'8", 6'10", 7'', but he just looks like a basketball player in a basketball uniform, but you put a baseball uniform on and he looks, man, he looks skinny and looks long, long and lanky. And, and uh, it's just amazing how athletic he was and, and he had really long strides and, and, and he was a good baseball player. And, and I agree with that. If he would have started, if he would have been drafted out of high school as an 18 year old and just got a ton of at bats and kept playing, I, I think that's a guy that, that could have played in the big leagues for sure. So now tell me about your transition from pro ball into coaching. I, I thought I had read that you had gone to big league spring training with the Rays in 98. Now, did you get an offer from Coach Hall to come be a volunteer assistant at Georgia Tech during that time period? How, how did all that work? How did all that function? Well, when I was with the Rays in 98, the minor league system wasn't fully developed yet. So I had played with them in 97 in their inaugural season in the minor leagues. They didn't have a big league team until 98. So 97, I played in high A in the Florida State League. And in 98, we were going to have the high A team in the Florida State League and then the Durham Bulls in AAA we were not going to have a double A team. We basically had four spots on the Orlando team, kind of a co-op team that took some players from different teams. So we had four spots in double A, a full triple A and a full high A team. And, you know, I'm 26 years old. I've been playing for five years and I just kind of told myself, look, if I'm, if I don't make the triple A roster, I'm done. This is it. I'm not just going to keep spinning my wheels. I'm not going to keep doing this. And I had a great spring training. I was in big league camp and got a few at bats and, and when I went down to minor league camp, continued to play well and thought I had a really good chance to make that AAA team. And about a week before we broke camp, I, I pulled my manager aside, my manager, Bill Evers, from the year before, who was going to be the AAA manager. And I just asked him straight up, hey, Bill, what's what's going on here? Do you have any idea where I'm going to be? And and he said, hey, Scott, we want you to go back to A-ball and kind of help these young pitchers out, basically kind of a Crash Davis kind of thing, an older coach on the field for these young pitchers and and, and I, I broke down and cried right there on the field for like 10 minutes. I couldn't stop crying because I knew my career was over. I walked off the field, uh, went in to uh, talk to the scouting director to make sure that's what the plan was. I had made my mind up. I'm not going to go back to A-ball again. It was time to move on. 
And uh, I called Danny Hall. I was in the, the hotel uh, lobby of the Ramada Inn in St. Petersburg, Florida. I called Danny Hall from a payphone. Our young listeners don't know what that is, but I called from a payphone and, and I, and I say, Hey coach, I, I just decided to retire and uh, wanted to know what he thought I should do. And he goes, well, come to Atlanta. I'll give you a job. I, I didn't realize that he was going to give me the volunteer job and not pay me. So I went to Atlanta and was the volunteer coach for a year and a half and had to do odd jobs to kind of make things work. Lived with a host family uh, just to try to make it work uh, because I knew I wanted to coach. So, but that's how I got my start. And then, so you transitioned from being a volunteer assistant at Georgia Tech, and then you landed at Vanderbilt. Is that correct? Yeah, I went up to Vanderbilt as a pitching coach for two years. And then you found your way back to Georgia Tech, and I want to ask you about this because I'm a uh, I'm an Orioles fan, so I, I know you were the recruiting coordinator when you were there. How many how many trips did you take down to Goose Creek to see Stratford High School and and Matt Wieters and Justin Smoke? What a, what a team that was, huh? Yeah, Reese Havens too. Three first rounders on that team. Reese Havens went and played at South Carolina as well. And three guys that were first round picks on the same high school team in Goose Creek, South Carolina. And you know, it's funny we needed a catcher. And uh, I was down in East Cobb watching games and, and I had, you know, a scout tap me on the shoulder and say, Hey, you know, coach, I hear you're looking for a catcher. And he goes, there's one on the field behind you. If you want to take a look Now he was a South Carolina kid. We primarily recruited Georgia kids. And, but I go over there and I see this six foot five inch kid with a great arm action and a really good swing. And I only saw him play about three innings, but I'm like, who is this kid? I didn't know who he was this was before, you know, scouting services and internet. I hadn't seen him play before. And uh, so I get a message with the coach. I, you know, hey, I'd like to, to talk to him. And I get his phone number. I have to call him. I call him the next day. His mom answers the phone. And uh, Mrs. Weeders tells me, Coach, he's been waiting for your call because Georgia Tech's his favorite team. And, you know, again, he's from South Carolina, kind of in Clemson, South Carolina territory. And, and it kind of took me off guard. And, and I said, why is that? She said, well, he's a switch hitting catcher. And he Jason Veritek. Veritek. And I'm like, oh, well, how about that? So we started recruiting him, but what really got it going was Jim Toman, who is now the head coach at Middle Tennessee State. Jim Toman was the recruiting coordinator at South Carolina. He came up to me a couple days later after he had heard through the grapevine that we started to recruit Matt. And he kind of started ribbing me a little bit about getting into South Carolina and recruiting his players. Hey, you're coming into my state and recruiting my players. And he, he was half serious, half joking, but... I kind of got ticked off about it. I'm like, you know what? He's telling me I can't come into South Carolina. So I actually called Coach Hall as soon as that conversation ended with Coach Tolman. And I said, you know what? I need to do an in-house visit with Matt Wieters. We need to get that guy. And uh, so I, I, I joke with Coach Tolman when I say that, when I, just because, you know, I, he's a great player, obviously. But I don't know how hard we would have recruited him. But I knew he was really, really good when Jim Tolman got upset we were recruiting. Yeah, that's really cool. And obviously had a phenomenal career at Georgia Tech and then has has been having a phenomenal career in Major League Baseball. Now, you had left by that point, but didn't – do I remember right? He would catch the first eight innings and then come in and close in the ninth for them during his career? He was a close – we recruited him as a two-way guy, and I remember seeing him in his high school senior year. He came on the mound, and he was 92, 93 miles an hour from like a three-quarter arm slot. You know, I was a little worried about the draft with him as a pitcher – uh, just because his arm works so good. But yeah, I never got to coach him. I recruited him as hard as I've ever recruited anybody, and I never got to coach him and uh, ended up going up to Kent State. You know what? I was recruiting Buster Posey really hard at the time, and he's a year younger than Matt Wieters. And, you know, he was a shortstop and a third baseman and also a pitcher in high school. And, and I felt like I was in pretty good shape 
with Buster. And then I left and, and in transition, things happen. And in Florida State's a lot closer to Lee County High School than, than the, you know, the flats of Georgia Tech. So he made the decision to go to Florida State. But I always say, you know, that was a really good decision on his part because if he would have come to Georgia Tech, he wasn't going to catch. He would have stayed at shortstop or played third base. And I'm sure he would have been just fine. He's a great player. But he got transitioned as a catcher at Florida State. That wasn't going to happen at Georgia Tech. So, so Buster, I think it worked out the best for him to go to Florida State. Oh, that's really interesting. I never heard that story. It's, it's wild how, and we've heard so many stories like this on the podcast from folks, how little things happen in people's lives to kind of set them down the path that they're supposed to go on. And speaking to that, how special was it for you to to leave Georgia Tech and then to get your first head coaching opportunity back at your alma mater? Well, it was funny. Rick Rembelak was the head coach at Kent State at the time when I was at, at Tech as the recruiting coordinator. And he called me up one night to ask me my thoughts on Wake Forest. Being an ACC school, Wake Forest had a job opening and they were talking to, to Rick. So he called me to ask my thoughts on Wake Forest. Hey, you've been there. You've seen the stadium. You've seen the facilities. We had a coach on our staff, uh, two coaches on our staff that had coached or played there. Um, so he was just kind of picking my brain. And, you know, I, it just went over my head a little bit. We had about a 45-minute conversation just about things. And we got near the end of the conversation and then it hit me holy cow, if he takes the Wake Forest job, Kent State's open. I might, would they think about me as being the head coach at Kent State? And sure enough, Rick gets that job. And two days later, Lane Kennedy, the athletic director at Kent State called me and, and it was a very smooth transition and still was kind of pinching myself that I can't believe I'm the head coach at Kent State when I was just playing here about 10 years before. And, and it was pretty wild. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about your time at Kent State. Can you talk about the build there and then the five straight conference titles and then also talk about that magical run in 2012 to Omaha? Yeah, it was pretty special to go back to my alma mater and, and where I met my wife. My wife's a Kent State alum. And so we went back to, to Kent State and raised a family there. And our first year is the only year in Kent State baseball history that we did not make the conference tournament. So my first year was not pretty. Uh, we had a pretty good team. Uh, I feel like I look back at it, I didn't do a very good job on our pitching staff. I, I thought I, I, I moved some roles around that if I had to do all over again, I, I would change some things. But we did not qualify for our conference tournament for the first time ever. And it's never happened again. Every year since then, Kent State has been in the conference tournament. But then in 2006, we turned around and won the conference. And we ended up winning eight straight championships, either the conference championship or the conference tournament championship eight straight years and, and really just built a, a consistent, powerful program that had draft picks every single year. And, and then finally in 2012, we broke through. It was, it was not my best team. My 2000 team was not my most talented team. My 2011 team with Travis Shaw, who's now with the Toronto Blue Jays, but you know, kind of made his name with the Red Sox and the Brewers, and Andrew Chafin, the setup guy for the Diamondbacks. Those two guys were on my team in 2011. We were really good. We were really talented. We went to Texas. We knocked off Texas uh, in the regional, but then they came back and beat us twice to advance out of that regional and go to the Super. And, and to be honest with you, I thought that was our opportunity. If we were ever going to go to Omaha, I thought our 2011 team was going to be the team to do it. But luck would have it that we had some seniors come back in 2012. We were not even picked to win our conference. The Mid-American Conference picked us to finish third that year because we'd lost so much. We'd lost four guys in the top five rounds on that Kent State team in 2011. So everyone thought we were rebuilding, 
But what they didn't know is we had a bunch of seniors that had been in three straight regionals that knew how to play in the postseason. We went on a 22-game winning streak uh, that went into the Super Regional. Our first loss in over a month and a half was game two of the Super Regionals at Oregon. And uh, just a veteran team that knew how to play. And, man, what a ride. And that was a lot of fun. Do you find – I've thought this, maybe I'm biased because it's a sport I played the longest, but I, I've, I've always thought that baseball more than any other sport from a team perspective is less about having a bunch of horses that can carry you. Now, that, that certainly doesn't hurt, right? But if you have a group of guys who play well together and play sound fundamental baseball, it can really get fun and you can really go a long way. And it sounds like that was, that was kind of at the center of that 2012 run. Yeah, our 2012 team could really pitch. We didn't. We only had one power arm on that team, but we had guys that knew how to pitch, and our defense was really stellar. Up the middle, we were very strong. Jimmy Ryder, the all-time hit leader in uh, Mid-American Conference history, is our shortstop. He was a senior. We had a really athletic sophomore, Derek Toadbine, at second base. We had a junior in Evan Campbell in center field. David Lyons, our catcher. So up the middle, we were really good and really experienced. We just made every play. We didn't make errors. We didn't beat ourselves. We threw a bunch of strikes. We grinded out at bats. When we got into the regional, when we played Kentucky, Kentucky was a better team than us. They had more talent than us. We won a 21-inning game. It's the second longest game in NCAA tournament history in the first game of that regional in 2012. We just grinded out, find a way, found a way to win a 7-6 crazy game. And uh, the rest was history. We just went on a roll. We beat Purdue the next day and uh, then had to beat Kentucky one more time and, and then went up to, to Eugene, Oregon and, and beat a very good Oregon Ducks team two out of three. And went into Omaha and found a way to beat Florida, who was the best team in the country that year, hands down. And they were so much better than us on paper. And I can remember talking to Scott Daly, who's still with me here at Georgia. I remember right before the first pitch, I looked at him. And I'm like, what do you think, coach? Right before we're getting ready to play Florida in an elimination game. And, and, and he kind of shook his head. He's like, oh, man, I don't know. Their lineup was so good and their pitching was so deep. I think they had five first-rounders on that team. And we played our best game of the year and, and just won a, just an unbelievable baseball game. I think 5-4 to four was the final score. and Just a lot of fun and, and just a great team to, to coach and be around. Now, what was the transition like or what was the process like coming into Georgia? And what was that offer like? And was there some hand-wringing on your part thinking about leaving your alma mater? Because I can imagine that, that going back to, to where you played and, and where you spent your college years and, and meet your wife and you're raising your family there, it had to be a tough decision to say, we're going to make the choice to move and go somewhere else. So can you talk about that a little bit and, and then come into Athens? Well, fortunately, I had some opportunities in previous years to look at other schools and, and kind of make that decision to go through the process and, and kind of realize how good I had it at Kent State. You know, I visited Michigan State. I visited Ohio State. I visited Notre Dame and, and, and had some opportunities to, to take a couple of those jobs and, and, and made the decision to not leave because I really loved where I was at Kent State. And the other thing, when you, you think about those schools, it's still cold there. And there's nothing worse than coaching baseball or playing baseball when you're freezing. And being at Kent State, we froze our rear end off almost every single game. In those other schools, it's really cold. It's really difficult. So I had told my wife, for whatever reason, my gut was telling me, we don't need to leave. We need to stay here because if I go to one of those schools and then a school in the South calls, I don't want to leave after one year. I, I feel just being loyal, I, I think it's really important. And, you know, we had been at Kent State for nine seasons after the 2013 year. And when I got the call from Greg McGarity and, and he wanted to talk about coming to Georgia, I told my wife, Sherry, I said, this one, this is it. This is why 
we are at any of those other schools. And it's, it's funny how things work out. Things are meant to be, things happen for a reason. And, and, uh, you know, when, when I got that call from Greg, they flew up to Akron to meet me. I sat down with Greg McGarity and Carla Williams, who's now the AD at Virginia and Jim Booz, who's at Virginia as well, Ted White. And, and the four that we sat down and talked and, Within about 20 minutes, I think we both knew that this was the fit. This was right. They offered me the job almost on the spot. I didn't accept it. I said, I got to sleep on this. I got to make sure I'm right. I knew I was, but I said, please don't give this to anybody else. But can I sleep on it? And they said, absolutely. I went home and I told my wife, I said, start looking for houses because this is where we're going. And, and it was the right decision. It, it was really hard at first because you, when you go from winning and being the better team every time you step on the field at Kent State, that was the case uh, in the Mid-American Conference. We were the best team. So we were out there, and we had more talent. We beat people uh, because we were good. Uh, we had players that played hard. We did things the right way. And all of a sudden, I come to Georgia, and the 2013 team of Georgia was 6-24 and 24 in the SEC. And we had some talented players in 2014, but we just have the depth. And when we played other teams, you played LSU, and you played South Carolina, and and you played Auburn, they just had more depth than we did. So it was really tough for me going from winning all the time, going into a game, knowing we're the better team, we're going to win this game, to going into the game, gosh, we got to really play well to get through this series. And, uh, and it took time to build this thing. Um, I'm glad I went through it. I don't know if I could go through it again. Those first four years were torture, but I'm really happy that Greg McGarity showed faith in me and trusted me and, and our coaching staff to get this thing turned around. And, and I couldn't be happy to be here. Well, we, as folks that follow the program, as folks that are fans of the program, we're certainly happy for that trust too, because obviously what you've built and what's going on with the Diamond Dogs and, and at Foldy Field is fantastic. Can you speak a little bit about the last two years and the runs in those two years and just the successes y'all had and then the early season success that y'all had this year? I mean, it looked like y'all were chomping and raring to go and, and, and ready to make another run in Omaha. Can, so can you just talk about that, that three-year period and, and what it's meant to you and the program? Yeah, we felt like that we were going to be really talented in 2017. That was my fourth year, and that's Aaron Schunk, Cam Shepard, Tony Losey, Zach Christofak, Tucker Bradley, Tucker Maxwell. All those guys were freshmen, but we're going to be really talented, and we're going to be deep and talented, but we were going to be young. So 2017, we took our lumps. We would, we would have seven freshmen on, on the field uh, sometimes. We just put them all out there and just said, you know what, just let's learn how to play. And, uh, and again, I'm really – really happy that Greg gave us the, the leeway to do that because we gave those guys experience instead of sitting them down and we, we let them fail. We let them learn how to play in this league. And when we got to 2018, we suddenly were still young with a bunch of sophomores, but had a ton of experience. And then you add guys like Michael Curry and Keegan McGovern and Kevin Smith and guys that have been in our program that were really talented. And now they've got guns around them. Uh, we had a really good team in, in 18 and felt like we had a chance to, to make a run. And, you know, we just, it's amazing in that regional, we were in a great spot. We got Emerson Hancock throwing against Duke on Sunday. We got to get beat twice. And, uh, you know, Emerson was, he ran out of gas. He was a freshman. It just, he's not the same guy then as he is now. And it's just maturity. But, you know what? Duke got on fire. They played so well. I mean, they just were flawless for two games. It broke my heart to have that happen on our home field. And then the following year, we had another great team. We felt like that this was the team with the experience that had the heartbreak of 18. 
now in 19, we're ready to go. We're primed and we just weren't healthy at the end of the year. We're not making excuses. Florida State kicked our tail in that regional. They played so good. But, uh, you know, Emerson was going through a lat issue and, and was, was not 100% healthy. C.J. Smith was out. You know, Zach Christofak had thrown so many innings for us. Ryan Webb was out. We had just so many guys that were beat up. And uh, we just found a way to get to where we were. And, and again, just heartbreak. That's the best way I can describe it. When you get that far and you get that close and you lose, uh, you know, it, it's just been tough. It's been satisfying to get there. But we all want to win. We all want to get to Omaha. We all want to win, win a national championship. So as satisfying it's been to get there and to build it, it's tough to lose at the end like that. And that's what makes this year so difficult because, again, we were ready to go. We had as good a chance to win it as anybody. Our pitching staff, you could argue, is the best pitching staff in the country. And with Emerson Hancock, Cole Wilcox, C.J. Smith, Ryan Webb, and freshmen like Jonathan Cannon and Will Childers and Michael Polk, I mean, we, we were just – loaded with talent on the mound and we were going to be able to compete with anybody Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. That's for sure. And we finished season number two in the country. Uh, we don't get any uh, trophies for that. The season ended prematurely. We all know it. It stinks, but uh, you know, we're just going to have to get back on the horse and get back after it next year. Yeah. So transition kind of next year and looking down to the future, this is one of the things, and obviously there are more serious things going on and things that are life and death, but there are, in my opinion, kind of silent tragedies that have occurred with everything that's happened and sacrifices folks have had to make. And I think some of the situations with sports has been one of them, right? Because we can't stop time. Time, time keeps rolling. And there are guys who were rearing up for their senior season, whether it be college or high school, and they don't get that opportunity. Uh, can you just speak to from a roster management perspective? Because I think everybody's reaction was, well, we'll give everybody an extra year of eligibility. But I think what folks don't understand is it's not that simple, right? The scholarship, I, I think people just assume that everybody that plays college sports is on scholarship. That's not the case. So some kids who were seniors may have to make a decision about whether they want to come back and, and pay tuition for another year. And so they miss that opportunity. And then you have kids coming in that are freshmen that are looking to play. And what are the challenges that y'all are going to face from that perspective? And what are the roster management things that y'all are looking at moving forward to, to manage the 2021 season? Well, the biggest challenge that we're dealing with right now is we don't know. We still don't know what's going to happen with the Major League Draft. We don't know when it's going to be. We don't know how many rounds it's going to be. I actually was just talking with a scout with the Twins this morning. And, and again, they're still, they don't know. Is it going to be five rounds? Is it going to be ten rounds? Are they not going to have a draft? I mean, there's still those scenarios that are out there. So we still don't know exactly what the draft is going to look like. It's always a guessing game with the draft, with your juniors, who's going to sign, who's not going to sign, your seniors, your really good seniors in high school that you've got coming in, they have the opportunity to sign pro contracts. Now with the shortened draft, it's going to be tougher for those high school players to get drafted high enough to sign. So do you have more players coming in that normally wouldn't be as seniors? Do you have more players coming back as juniors? The seniors on our rosters aren't the issues because the NCAA did right by those guys. They get to play again. They get another year back. They get their scholarship back. Whatever they were on the year before, they can get that again and it doesn't count against our scholarship limit. So the seniors have been given room to come back, relief, so to speak. The juniors are the question mark. Those guys that were going to be eighth-round picks, 10th-round picks, 12th-round picks as juniors, they normally sign because in baseball, you get money your junior year. You don't get money your senior year. It's not like the NFL. The NFL, it doesn't matter if you're junior senior, right. you're getting that slot bonus. In baseball, 
it's different. Juniors get more money than seniors. So you sign your junior year if you get drafted high enough because of the signing bonus. Now less juniors are going to get drafted. So that means more juniors are coming back. Well, what about our roster? What about the guys that we expected to be 10th or 12th rounders? They're not going to be here next year. Now all of a sudden they're going to be. So what we're still waiting to hear is, is the NCAA going to give us some relief and allow us to expand our roster? They're not going to give us more scholarship dollars, I can tell you that. Not very many schools have 11.7 to begin with. That's our maximum scholarship to spread around 27 scholarship players is 11.7. They're not going to make it 13, 14, or 15. What they're going to maybe do is allow us to have 30 players on scholarship or 32 players on scholarship, but we still have to spread that 11.7 among those numbers. We still don't know that. That will give us some relief if they do it, but we still haven't heard yet. So we're a lot of shoulder shrugging going on right now. We don't know what's going to happen with our roster, but it's certainly, uh, you know, I would say nerve wracking and stressful would be the two best ways to describe our roster management right now, because we don't know what it's going to look like. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's one of the things we have talked about. I, like I told you earlier, we'd had Jim Callison from MLB.com and he had talked about how that's going to present challenges all across the country, right? Because even if it's a shortened draft, it's less rounds. So it's less opportunity for guys to go. It's, it's less opportunity for guys to get money at the right slot, all those type things. So just a lot of variables that go into it and, and obviously unique times. Is there a, a memory that you would take away from the early season um, or that you would share with, with Dogs Faithful that, that you'll hold on to with this 2020 campaign you know uh you know the the best memory i think was opening day you know emerson hancock went out there and he's projected to be the number one overall pick and you've got 30 major league scouts in the stands it's a sellout uh and and he just didn't have his best day you know and, and that happens and we're we fall behind six to two and i remember looking up at the scoreboard in the fifth inning thinking how is this possible how, how is how are we losing six to two on opening day with all these fans and we had Emerson on the mound and just, I was almost pinching myself. There's no way that this was the way this was supposed to go. And that team just chipped away. And you look at six to three, then it's six to four, then it's six to five. And then Garrett Blaylock hits a ball about 500 feet to tie it in the bottom of the ninth. And Cole Tate hits a walk-off single to win opening day on a walk-off. When it looked so, you know, dreary in the fifth inning, you know, we dogpiled in right field. Uh, when they all attacked Cole Tate. So I think that's my best memory. And, you know, for me, the, the, the feeling I'll never forget is being on the bus coming back from Florida when we had already been told you're not going to play this weekend, you're not going to play for the next two weekends. But we all felt like, okay, this is going to be a temporary halt of action. We're going to have a couple weeks off, and then we're going to get back into things. And before we pulled into Athens, we were about 45 minutes away from Athens when it came across all of our phones on social media that the postseason had been canceled. There's not going to be a regional. There's not going to be a super regional. There's not going to be Omaha. And our bus, you know, normally guys are in the back playing cards and joking around and having fun. It just got eerily quiet. Everybody got the news at the same time because we're all on our phones all the time. It all came across the phone. And it just, it was heartbreaking to be on that bus. So I'll never forget that feeling. I hope I never have it again. And I hate that these kids have had to go through it. 
Yeah, we're the same, and hopefully we, we look forward to a normal and, and regular season in 2021. Well, Coach, we appreciate you spending some time with us. We want to close with you today. This is how we close all our interviews. We, we talk a lot of football here, so we close our interviews with what we call the Smart 16, 16 rapid-fire questions in honor of Coach Smart and the number he wore as a dog. So we're going we're gonna to modify them a little bit because you're a baseball guy, so we're going to do some baseball stuff in here as well, okay? All right. All right, so first question is, what's your middle name? Alan. Who is the funniest either teammate or coach you've ever been around? I'm going to go Mickey Calloway. When I played with him with the Rays, he was the manager of the Mets, and now he's a pitching coach of, uh, I believe, the Angels now. But that guy was an awesome teammate, funny dude. And what is your favorite game that you've ever been a part of? 21-inning game that we beat Kentucky in the regionals at Kent State. The Clemson 20-inning game was number two. If that would have been in the postseason, that would be favorite. But the opening day of the regional against Kentucky, 21-inning victory for Kent State. And what is your favorite rivalry within the Southeast Conference? That's a tough one. It's every weekend. Um, I guess I'd have to say either Florida or Vanderbilt. You know, they're on our side. We play them every single year. We don't play the teams from the other side. You know, it's obviously great to, to play LSU and and uh, Mississippi State and, and all those great teams. But Vanderbilt and Florida, I mean, those are the two of the best teams in the country. We get to play them every single year. And, and uh, I, I would have to say it's a toss-up between those two. What is your favorite away stadium in the Southeastern Conference? I got to go Arkansas, and it's really close. All those teams in the West, it's really good. But Arkansas, man, those fans are right on top of you. They do a great job in the outfield with their fans. And, you know, it's 10,000 screaming Pig Suey fans. They do that Pig Suey all the time. I, I, I got I to say Arkansas, but it's close. You take any of those stadiums in the West for sure and, uh, and say that they're in there. What is the loudest home game you've ever been a part of at Foley Field? I got to say probably LSU on Sunday when John Cable hit the grand slam. It was, uh, it was, I think we were winning two to one in about the fifth inning. And John Cable hit a grand slam over the scoreboard and right. And that's he did the backflip. It kind of went viral. I mean, he did a big time backflip, which I'm not a huge fan of, but he did it. And if you're going to do it, a grand slam against LSU at home is a good time to do it. But that, that the place exploded. My ears popped. Our dugout went nuts. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, a close second is Riley King hit a grand slam against Vanderbilt that same year, two weeks later uh, on Sunday to clinch that series. So I go LSU at home, John Cable grand slam, Riley King grand slam against Vanderbilt second. All right. You get to choose the headlining act at the Georgia Theater. Who do you choose? I'll go Billy Joel. I'm going to go classic. You know, I think he'd be great in that small venue. I'll go Billy Joel. I like that little piano man at the Georgia Theater. I ain't mad at that. All right. You're you're attending the world's largest outtail cocktail party to see the dogs play Florida in Jacksonville. What cocktail are you mixing? Water, of course. I don't <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do a better one. This is one we've done too. What cocktail are you mixing for your wife? a good one uh probably a margarita she, she likes her margaritas either that or I'm, I'm not a very good uh uh mixologist but if i could mix a martini i'd do it for her. but I, I let someone else do the for her but uh i'd say a margarita for her and what is if you have one meal to eat in athens what's your favorite place to eat in athens we go to five bar a lot it's it's just a, we take our recruits there as well but chuck's fish five bar 
Uh, you want to get Little Italy pizzas, really good. The National. I mean, there's so many great places in Athens. But our, our, my wife and I go to. We go to Five Bar. Uh, do you have any game day superstitions, um, either when you played or now as a coach? I don't. And, uh, you know, I, I actually convinced myself in 2012 when, when we made that run to Omaha that it did not matter which sock I put on first, whether or not we were going to beat Oregon that night or Florida that day. If I put my right sock on first, we're not going to lose. So I had to convince it because I started to do it. You know, you make that run with one twenty-two games in a row, and I started to pick up some habits of doing some things. And I, you know, what I'm not going to drive myself crazy and do it because you can, and some people do. But I, I've pretty much stayed away from that stuff. All right. So since you've been in Athens and you know have attended games at Sanford and seen the dogs play between the hedges, what is your favorite Sanford Stadium pregame tradition? Whether it be uh, red coat marching band, spelling Georgia, lone trumpeter, um, Larry Munson coming across the the airwaves, dog walk. Which one of those is your favorite? I'm gonna go the dog walk when the band plays before the team gets there, and they have the lone trumpeter that starts. The lone trumpeter. Before the game in the stadium is awesome. It gives you chill. It gets, I get chills just thinking about it right now. But in the dog walk, we always have recruits there. So we're all jammed in there and you're waiting for the team to come. And you're trying to explain to these recruits and their families, hey, this is really cool. Get ready for this. It's Trump. And you see him kind of getting into place. And when that lone trumpeter goes, man, it's, I'm, I'm getting choked up thinking about it. It's so awesome when that happens. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. All right, this is a, a controversial one amongst Dogs fans and, and some of our guests. But, you know, Dogs baseball looks sharp in their black jerseys. What's your opinion on the football black jerseys, yes or no? No, no. It's it's all about the red. Uh, it's all about the, the white with the silver britches. Uh, you don't mess with greatness. And uh, what, what we have is a great thing at Georgia. Uh, why do it? And, uh, you know, I get it. And I think it's really cool to do it at night. But uh, Kirby's Kirby's made. I think he's done it one time, and he did it in a game he knew he was going to win. But I think our fans have all learned from. I think it was the Auburn game, or maybe the Alabama game that we blacked it out way back, and the place went nuts, and we got our tails kicked. Had nothing to do with the jerseys, but most fans remember that. And you know, our fans want to win. If we win in red jerseys, no one's going to complain. If we lose in black jerseys, everybody's going to complain. So I'm all for staying red and the white. All right, what's the loss you're still not over? I got to say the Duke uh, loss two years ago. Just really hard. I mean, we were right there in position, and we had a, a lead. In the, I think it was the fourth or fifth inning. We were up three or four runs, and uh, you know our bullpen was just depleted. We just couldn't hold on. Duke, uh, give them credit, but that's the one that, that I still wake up in the middle of the night in cold sweat on. All right, what's your order at the varsity? <laughs> You know what? Believe it or not, I've only been to the one in Athens once. I've been to the one in Atlanta a few times, but uh, you know, I, I'm straight cheeseburger and, and onion rings, and, and I stay away from the, the orange, uh, the orange smoothie or the orange creamy, whatever they call it. But I go straight Coke and cheeseburger and, and onion rings. I grease it up. I don't feel very good about it afterwards, but it tastes good going down. Oh, it sure does. It sure does. All right. To harken back to uh, to Crash Davis, there ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing noon kickoffs. Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Especially in Athens, Georgia. You know, I, and we've been fortunate the last couple of years that we've been we've gotten really good time for our kickoffs. But yeah, man, that noon kickoff is tough. I, I can't imagine for the players, you know, their, their daily routine really gets condensed. But, you know, the, the coaches, you know, Kirby made a good point, you know, about the noon kickoff. 
when they get done with that, they get extra time to decompress and they actually get to, to watch other games. When you play that night game, you know, you're not getting out of there, out of that stadium until one o'clock and you're exhausted and, and they got to do all that work on Sunday to get ready for the final week. So I think coaches don't hate it uh, because they get some time afterwards. But uh, I know the fans hate it. I don't like it for recruits. We can't practice on those days. We love to practice on football game days because our recruits can come in and watch us practice and then go to the football game. They get the best of both worlds. But the noon one, we can't do it. So I, I don't like it. All right, final question. College football playoff, expand to eight teams or find how it is? I think we leave it how it is. You know, if we get to eight, then there's going to be team number nine and team number 10 that complain. There's always going to be a team complaining they're left out. When you look at the way it's happened the last couple of years, I think the best four teams have been there. And I think it's worked out. Um, you know, th these kids are not robots and you keep putting them out there. I mean, just watching the beating that they're taking, you go from the SEC championship to the semifinal to the finals and just the violence of, of this game and how fast and strong these kids are. I don't think it's fair to the kids uh, to do it. So I'm all for staying at four. I think as a fan, you love watching more games and more high profile games, but I think our conference championships have ended up being the quarterfinals. That's the qualifier to get into it. I think that's the way you look at it. I think we've already got them built in. I think we leave it the way it is, but I think at the end of the day, at some point, I think we're going to have eight. All right. Fantastic. Well, coach, that gets you off the hot seat with the smart 16. Thank you for answering them. And uh, just thank you for spending time with us and, and joining us today. We, we loved hearing your story and certainly feel blessed to, to have you at the helm with George baseball. So thanks for being with us and, and health and blessings to you and your family. Okay. Appreciate you having me on. All right. Thanks coach. That wraps up our interview with coach Strickland boss. What were your takeaways? He's had an amazing journey. First off, from his his minor league journey, you know, it was kind of gut wrenching listening to his him talk about when he found out that he wasn't going to make Triple A ball, where he thought he had a great shot, and just basically when you find out your your dream is over, and I think at some point in time, you know, as any athlete has, they realize that they're not going to play at the next level, um, whether it be from high school to college or from college to pro or from, you know, whatever it may be. It's just, you know, everybody realizes that that is their goal, that that that's gone. And it's, it's hard for anyone to accept. And he made it farther than most. And just, but just hearing that, that was tough to hear, but, you know, he's made baseball, his love, a, you know, a career out of it by going into coaching. I found it pretty hysterical that he took a job without realizing that it was uh, an unpaid job for his first coaching job, but he did work his way up and made a hell of a career for himself, you know, by doing awesome at his alma mater at Kent State and being very fortuitous getting that job and then doing awesome there. And really, though, I found it interesting about how he ended up at Georgia and his reasoning behind ending up at Georgia. One of the main reasons was is that it sucks playing baseball in the cold weather, which I'm not, was never really a big baseball player grew up playing it, but didn't really, you know, wasn't my first love or anything like that. Really a big football guy, but can really understand that not wanting to, you know, hold a metal bat and play in cold weather. can't imagine that feels very good. So not really wanting to freeze his ass off and wanting to get to warmer weathers. And that's kind of how he ended up in Georgia. And if, like you said in the intro, if you, after listening to this, if, if you don't feel that Georgia baseball is in good hands, then something's wrong because the last three years, granted, the two years beforehand didn't end how we wanted, but the program's been in the right direction. And I know the first couple of years of his tenure didn't go the way everybody wanted, and a lot of people were kind of down on him at, the, at that point in time. But things are going in the right direction, and he's 
he's gotten brought in some great talent and that's going to continue going forward. Now he, everybody with everything going on with the virus, there's the roster management is going to be an issue, but it's not going to be an issue just for Georgia. It's going to be an issue for every other program in the country. Um, it was just actually announced that three players entered the transfer portal. I think yesterday or a couple days ago this week, three players entered the, tra- entered the transfer portal. So that's going to be the norm for college baseball going forward. But he'll manage it fine. This program is in good hands for the long haul, and I think we should all be proud of that. You want to know the one word that came to my mind after I got done talking with him? Winner. He's a winner. Um, I think that's evident throughout his story with the success they had at Kent State and the success he had there as a manager and the programs he was affiliated with, whether it be Vanderbilt or Georgia Tech or, or wherever. And he's doing that here. They're, they're winning and he is building an elite baseball program in the elite baseball conference in the country. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm so fired up that coach Strickland's at, at the helm. And I had two stories I loved that he told. The first one was what a great nugget about when he was recruiting for Georgia tech. And after they had recruited Matt Wieters, he was also heavily recruiting Buster Posey and, you know, he essentially said, if I hadn't taken a job at Kent State, I feel pretty good about the fact that Buster would have gone to Georgia Tech. And then maybe he never makes the switch to become a catcher. And number one, he's, you know, obviously didn't spend the time at Florida State and have the career that he had at Florida State. Maybe all that happens at, at Georgia Tech. And then maybe he's playing a different position and, and his pro career looks differently. And now you're looking at a guy who, with the numbers that he's had and the success that he's had with the World Series titles, you know, we're talking borderline Hall of Famer at this point. So, I thought that was a really cool story, really interesting nugget about how the things that happen behind the scenes dictate paths that we just never realize. The other story that he told, which I thought was so honest and just made you hurt on the inside, was the story that he told about everybody getting the news that the season was going to be canceled on the bus. I just can't imagine after you put all of that work in in the fall and lifting weights and then winter workouts and then you come back and you're amped up to start the season. You got all this juice going. You know, you feel like you got a roster that's going to take you a, a long ways and get you to the to the mountaintop that you're aiming for. And it all just gets swiped out from under you through no fault of your own and, and completely out of your control. I just thought he gave a very honest answer about that and really conveyed the emotion of everyone on the bus and everybody that had to deal with that. So I thought that was great. I really, really enjoyed talking with Coach Strickland. I mean, I've said this before, I'm probably a little biased because I love baseball, played it all my life, and um, it, it was just great to talk some baseball. had a great time talking with Jim and had a great time talking with Coach Strickland. So we just so pumped up that that he's on our side in our dugout and so thankful to him for coming on the show and, and sharing some time with us so coach Strickland absolutely a damn good dog so go dogs sick them go dogs hey, George is better now